What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 15 of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Alpha Counseling and Treatment, who is the largest and most respected provider for justice-involved clients in need of sexual offense-specific treatment services. Alpha is also a JRI-certified agency providing moral recognition therapy and substance use disorder treatment to justice-involved clients. You can be confident that treatment you will receive with Alpha will help keep you out of the criminal justice system. Alpha clinical professionals are trained and certified in cognitive behavioral interventions for sexual offending. This evidence-based program teaches participants strategies for avoiding sexual offending and related behaviors. The program places heavy emphasis on skill-building activities to assist with cognitive, social, emotional, and coping skills development. Visit their website today at utahsbesttherapy.com or you can call them directly at 801-645-5455. This episode is also brought to you by Triple S. Triple S provides scientific outcome measures for clinicians in the field of behavioral health. Outcome measures provide direction for both clients and treatment providers using evidence-based practice. Any program not using outcome measures to track their clients' progress and success has been scientifically proven to be less effective. Lastly, this episode is brought to you by Hottyware. Do you like being left alone when you're working out? Are you sick of people bothering you when you're working out? Well, Hottyware is activewear for people who just want to work out without the small talk and the nonsense. With Hottyware, you can let your apparel do the talking for you. Check them out on Instagram. That is Hottyware, H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, Wear, W-E-A-R, Hottyware. Alrighty, folks. On this episode today, we have the lovely Jamie Newsom, who is here visiting us from University of Cincinnati Corrections Institute. We went out there back in May to do a training on implementing a new group curriculum, which was based off the cognitive behavioral therapy. So she got to sit in, kind of see how things are going, see how the clients are like and that. And we got to get some feedback on how we were doing, which is always fun. Have someone sitting in your groups critiquing you a bit, but it went really well. She was great to work with. So she decided to also join us on the podcast to go into a little detail about their curriculum and how how the cognitive behavioral approach has been helping people in the justice system, specifically with sex offenders. So we're going to talk a bit about their research on that and how they got to implement implement that and how that's been going on our end. It's a really good one. Stay tuned. With, with the strong, it's a surprise attack with the start always, so there's no like on the air. We're just all of a sudden we're going. So like, and we're going to start talking right now. Go, Jamie, start talking now. With the with yeah. the strong and mighty, J- Jamie Newsom, Newsom, right? Strong and mighty, I like that. That's yeah. right, Newsom. Yeah, yeah. Did, did anybody ever call you like the gruesome Newsom? Any? Well, it's married name, oh, so okay. I didn't always have Newsom. Oh. Did he ever say that? He's like, uh, you know. Like we're we're the we're the gruesome news. You have like a softball team. We're, <laughs> we're, no, you, no, I've actually never heard that one. That's pretty good. No, though. it's an I original, like it. and you're you're totally okay to take it home and say, Thank you. "Guess what, hubby? What's his name? Tony." So Tony, when you listen to this, you know that sounds great. Gruesome Newsome, <laughs> dude. If I had the last name Newsome, 
I'd be Mace the Gruesome. <laughs> That'd be Mason. cool if you were a football player or wrestler or something. But if you're just like in a band and your name is Gruesome. No, Mason. a softball player would be just fine. Like, it'd be funnier if you're a softball player. <laughs> you know what fair. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> what if they go on like double dates and introduce themselves as the Gruesome Nuisance? Maybe. Corny double dates. It's, it's actually a really good screener because if they didn't like it, then we would know like this isn't a good match for double dating anymore. Like yeah, they would have to, go. they would That's have true. to appreciate gruesome Newsome. That's in order right. For me exactly to like it. even consider them for a second. That's good. Double Those date. screener tests are really good. We were talking about that on we another did. podcast. We were saying that like, so when um, when when everybody was single at one point or another, we like I was say, uh, oh, by anybody listening to this in Cincinnati, for some reason, Jamie the gruesome Newsome does not know who Stipe Miocic is, who is the heavyweight <laughs> UFC champion right now. Sorry, Jamie. It's yeah, be a rough homecoming for you. Yeah, go, don't go to school for the next few. Uh, but uh, no one's gonna care. But we were, we would. So, yeah, nobody cares. So we were watching the UFC, and and like if you were dating a new girl. You'd bring her over to the mm. UFC, and everybody would. I mean, because like you've seen our personalities before, and and they come over, and then it would just be a test. And if those girls can hack it, it'd be like, well, don't bring that girl around again. You yeah, know, she yeah. she would She's voluntarily she would voluntarily not ever show her face again because she would hate our guts. Yeah, it's basically throwing them into the fire. Like if you can handle this, then we could probably date. <laughs> You'll probably be all right. It's the worst. Everybody of the worst. will know after that first introduction that's right this isn't good for any of us well speaking of introductions what's so what's your your role here jamie and it, it, is it phd it is phd holla yeah is yeah. that the first one hashtag ballin on our podcast the first super smart person no dr k everyone's oh, been yeah, super smart right. was a phd You're the second yeah and everybody's been super, super smart, smart. Person. everyone right. is smart in their yeah. own way yeah. Yeah. yeah everybody has except for some people <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, PhD in what? Criminal justice. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. So uh, you're from the University of Cincinnati Corrections Institute? Correct. Okay. And what do they do there? What's the What's the deal? Uh, we do a lot of stuff there. Most of our work is founded in that risk-need responsivity model. So we're really trying to get evidence-based practices out in the world. Um, and most of the evidence-based practices that... Um, we try to promote, train agencies in, and provide um, a lot of different support in a lot of different ways is in that risk-need responsivity model. Wow. Will, will you detail that a little bit, risk-need responsivity? Like, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with the acronyms and the phrases and terms, and so that would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll try to keep it brief. I'll say, like, late 80s, the uh, a group of scholars started working on what works with offenders at that point in time. Um, a lot of people were like, nothing works. We can't really do anything. We should basically lock them up and throw away the key. Um, but there was a small group of scholars who didn't kind of buy into that, and they started doing work on what does work. Some things do actually work, and how can we kind of pull that information together and um, figure out what, what the best strategies are. So they did tons and tons of research and compiled it and tried to simplify it in a way that's easy for practitioners to use. So risk-need responsivity model are the, the key pieces of that. So risk, we want to target high-risk offenders. Uh, need, we want to focus in on their criminogenic needs, which sounds fancy, but it really just means um, crime-producing factors, things that we know are linked to recidivism. And then that responsivity piece uh, really has two parts. The main thing is we want to use interventions that we know work to reduce recidivism. So uh, those tend to be cognitive behavioral therapy, 
social learning models. And then the specific part of that is tailoring treatment to each individual. So you guys work with lots of different people. They're all different. You see diverse clients and we want to make sure that you're in individualizing um, what you're doing with them. So, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. I'm glad I had you to find it. You did a bang up job of keeping it concise. That was good. Yeah. Thank you. Except dude, are you like, are you breathing hard into the microphone? I feel like you're breathing so I think hard. that's the hum. Hold on. No. We'll, we'll th- test it out. Hold on. We'll find out. What? So just everyone stop for a minute. That's a power thing. That might not even come through Can in a podcast. No. Okay. We'll it see. might just be running through the headphones. I, I, I literally have not breathed for five minutes. We're gonna do a check here. Yeah, it's not. You've been hold on one second. Hold on. I found it. What was it? You guys talk. Told you guys. The cord I brought was the one I purposely threw out because it's crappy. So you guys keep going. I'll fix this while we go. Okay. Well, so so I just wanted to back this up a little bit. So you're saying I back to risk need responsivity, um, and uh, and I saw it's uh, Miranda Schweitzer. Am I pronouncing that correctly? She goes by Mindy. Mindy. Yeah. But officially Miranda's her legal name, right? Mirinda. Mirinda. Really? Wow. Okay. So Mindy Schweitzer. Mm-hmm. Like Ms. or Mrs. Doctor. Doctor. Ms. Doctor Schweitzer. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I think her married name is Smith. So her maiden name is Schweitzer. But oh. she holds on to that Schweitzer, though, because she, she earned that, right? Both. Yeah. She yeah. Both. Don't take on that Smith. Screw that guy. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think Mr. Smith is very nice. I, uh, he's, I, he's a nice guy. There's no way that anybody Mindy is hanging out with isn't a great guy. So I, true. I, yeah, Mindy's awesome. So but I, uh, I'm going to go for the switch here real quick. So Okay. what you, Can I you, not talk? T- you, you tell a joke you, or something. Well, so I've just, I'll just share that when I was... Uh, so I had the... I had sat in on like a three-day training with Mindy, actually. And one of the things she was talking about... So this risk, just again, for, for people who are listening to this. So the risk, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jamie, is targeting the who. The delivering more intense interventions to higher risk offenders. The need is the what targeting the like you said the criminogenic needs to reduce the risk for recidivism and then the how is the responsivity so using cbt approaches matching the model of service and to the offender and then there's the how well which is the fidelity which is kind of why you're here right absolutely right so the deliver the treatment services as they were designed correct yep. okay yep. which so Jeff and Justin are here. You're going to be observing them, yeah. right? And we'll just have to get this on record here for the podcast. Was that not the greatest group that you just witnessed me run? Okay, a moment so ago? you guys, Mace really set the bar really high. It was a phenomenal group. This isn't new though. I always know his groups are better. <laughs> oh. He sets the bar, and then I just go, "Yeah, I'm going to learn from that." Well, I haven't conceded yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was a fantastic. He does group. good. He did a wonderful job. He's That's a very awesome. very skilled facilitator. What, what did he do well? In terms of, I guess, implementing it the way that it's supposed to be ran. Um, he did a really, really good job. Um, we look for a lot of different things when we do fidelity checks. So he used a lot of really good specific verbal praise. So when somebody did something well, he told them not just good job, but he told them exactly what they did well. So that was really nice to see. He also um, modeled the skill that he was teaching them today. Um, so that was really, really nice. He did a very clean, here's the steps of the skill, and here's how you do it, and I'm going to actually get up and show you how to do it. So um, that was really, really clean, really well done. Um, what else? Um, it, well, I mean... I mean, there were so many... Th- I literally wrote, like, pages of 
Yeah, there's so many well. good stuff. She ran out of ink. Is well, really I, with it. I guess what I want to you, know. You're asking a question. What no, should I do tomorrow? What am I just trying to feed yeah. my yeah. ego? Yeah. Like you're asking, okay, what makes a good cognitive behavioral therapy group, right? Well, kind of. I mean, I, we can address that too. But I guess I specifically want to know, want to know if you were docked any points for having an ego that rivaled our commander in chief. You know, I would I would think that like <laughs> that would probably dock you some points, so that all in all you ran kind of an average group is that the case no oh, okay okay no. see it's it not was be- that good then it's right. not being conceded if you back it up son okay. if it's just reality <laughs> i mean i'm just Fair enough. identifying facts here bro yeah, yeah. You know, he, he was super confident and it was really nice to see that too that was actually another strength of his the confidence really yeah. yeah 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 for sure no i mean obviously mace is a stud when it comes to running groups it's just he knows it and lets everybody else know, you know, so I mean, you kind of have to occasionally try to take him down a peg. It never works. It never works. But occasionally we try to well, I try will, humbling him. I will say that when I give feedback, I always start with, what do you think you did well? And most people go skip that entirely and go into everything they think went wrong. And he didn't. He was like, <laughs> yeah, here's what I, I, run, I believe I you. Gr- good groups. <laughs> Would you like me to alphabetize my list of what I did well? <laughs> let, let me get that list out for you. Oh, no. Well, no, I, I, I really appreciate it. And this is um, so for anybody who's listening, um, this is a big reason. Uh, I think it was when did we go to the, it was last year. May. May. So, yeah. Yeah, May of 2017, we went to the University of Cincinnati and attended the uh, Cognitive Behavioral Interventions for Sex Offenders training. It was a four or five day training. Four day. Four day training. Felt like five, didn't it? No, Sarah no? Botner. <laughs> maybe for her, maybe for our <laughs> for her, it is, yeah. 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 Poor Sarah. Felt like a month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was. Uh, I well, and I. It was. Um, it was interesting because Jeff and I had talked about this before, and um, you know, Jeff has has really given me the reins in terms of uh, clinical direction for Alpha and. Uh, really kind of helping uh, i think one of the things i've i've come around to is this idea that evidence-based practice and things that we know to be effective so what you're talking about where i mean w- okay there's nothing we can do we're gonna just throw our hands up lock them up and throw away the key um that's not a solution and nevertheless uh, w- i think we have a huge responsibility i mean i i work with Justice involved clients all across the board. So I deal a lot with, you know, drug offenders and, and, and a ton of clients that are just in the criminal justice system. But I feel a, a particular passion towards sex offenders because I think it's a lot of responsibility to be a sex offender therapist. I mean, we're, we're basically, I, I mean, th- I try to educate people and say, I, I understand that you don't agree with their offenses, of course, and you may even want them to be locked up and throw away the key. Unfortunately, that's not a reality. They're going to be coming out. They're going to be coming to your community. Mm-hmm. You want them to be, get the best care possible. And in sex offender treatment, more than anywhere else, I feel like it's a flavor of the month type of treatment approach. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, they're like, well, we're doing equestrian therapy here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I was like, oh, well, we're reading chakras and crystals. I mean, nothing against chakras and crystals. I'm just saying, I mean, I just, I just want to make sure that what we're doing is the best medicine we can deliver for the clients that we have. And I think UCCI does a great job with that. Yeah, we, we really try hard to, um, you know, every decision that we make, every um, product that we develop for use in the field, all the work that we do, we really uh, make a strong effort to make sure it's tied to the evidence and what we know works. Um, and if we know that something doesn't work, then, you know, we, we avoid those things and we recommend that others do too. Why do you think, 
that clinicians get so caught up in that or programs or agencies that we we are going in this direction and even though you say this works and even though you have evidence to prove that this works, we're going to stick with our thing. Why do you think that happens? Oh, there's probably a lot of different reasons. On a practical side, I think a lot of places um, don't have a lot of resources and making those big changes is an investment. Um, a lot of time, a lot of effort, some finances in some cases. So I, I think the resources is probably a big part of it. Another part of it is I think sometimes uh, what we find in the research, there's just a little bit of a lag in how long it takes to make its way out into the field. And so as we learn more and more about what works with offenders, uh, we're still working with people who have been working with offenders for a really long time. They were trained in a different way. They've seen value in it in their work, you know, over time. And so switching to something that's new or different or not something that they've worked with for some, you know, they've 20, 30 years in the field and they, they haven't worked with that. Um, I think there can be some resistance and some like, well, why would I switch to this when this has been working for me for so, so long? Right. Um, so I, I think there's a number of kind of obstacles that can come up for different agencies. I think that's, that's the sweetest way I've ever heard that explained. <laughs> like, and that so, she was nice in. Yeah. Uh, well, here, here's a deal. Like I, I can recognize some of the second portion of what you said in myself, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, the first thing is the, is, you know, resources it, I mean, it, we did have to purchase plane tickets and pay for the training and go out there and hang out with you fine folks for a few days. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of the training costs and getting staff up and running. But the, the second piece is, I don't know, anytime I've been introduced to any kind of a curriculum change, I've noticed my own sort of internal responses like to push back a little bit. And that, I don't know if that's just kind of normal human response to change or because I feel like I've invested a lot of my time and energy into approaching it this way and it seems to be working and who are you to tell me that? So yeah. I, can, I can feel some of that stuff, but then at the same time, I guess just, I mean, if, if the evidence, which is, I mean, ultimately what we're doing here, if the evidence says that this is what works, I, I kind of have to confront that in myself and tamp down my own ego and, and it's all right. This is what it is. And so, uh, I mean, I think Justin had something to say too, but when we, when we first got trained up in it and we, we came back, I was, I was actually a little bit intimidated mm-hmm. to run the curriculum and I remember I'd briefed my groups on it kind of like, all right, here's a deal. I got to like read this script and I have to have you guys do these role plays. Like, sorry, I, I, I caught myself like apologizing. But the thing is, is like uh, probably two weeks deep into running it. I love it. And the, yeah. the, the clients responded way better than I thought they would too. I, I was thinking I was going to be dealing with a ton of like blowback and like, well, this is stupid. And I mean, not that, that hasn't really been the case. Uh, people tend to be on board and, and it actually helps me. Like there's a lot of times where we'll have maybe a, like a, a group that's pretty treatment savvy and the group almost runs itself. And then, but when you get new group members without a curriculum in place, like a uh, CBISO, it gets easy to like not, not go over the stuff that the newer people need to comprehend to fully understand, you know, sex offender treatment. And it's easy to gloss over it. And so, this, I think this addresses it. You know, everybody comes in, everybody learns these time tested principles. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy works pretty well, you know, everywhere. And I don't know. It's, it, 
but it, it was an adjustment period for me. And I think a lot of people dig their heels in uh, before they even just uh, suck it up and give it a shot. Yeah, I think there can be some resistance to change just generally, right? I mean, we all have our routines and things that we know work for us and things that we do every day. I mean, I'm like every morning I get up and the first thing I do is make coffee because if I don't, I feel like I might die without it, right? And so if somebody was like, we're going to change that and we're going to switch you over to orange juice, I would be like, no, we're not. (laughs) No, we're not. My experience has been great with coffee every day, you know? So, I, I mean... And you could show me lots of evidence that it'd be better if I switched over to something else. And I'd be like, but I kind of want the coffee, you know, because it's what I love. But if it was Adderall, then... <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah there's, that, uh, there's that knee-jerk reaction, like you're saying. I think there's the resistance part and just change is weird. Yeah. But for whatever reason, with just certain populations, like when we talk about sex offenders, yeah. I think people go way off into overthinking it. So, wait a minute, your program's going to be more simple and more basic and like what you deal with? Well, no, we're dealing with sex offenders. We got to talk about their offense twenty four seven, and if we're not doing that, yeah. they're a risk. So, part of it for me was when we do process groups before. You know, I'd be thinking throughout the day, "What am I going to talk about tonight? What's the topic yeah. going to be?" Which I, I like having the curriculum because it eliminated that. I don't have to stress all day for one. Yeah. But also, I won't lie. When we first got to the training, and started looking through this stuff. My first thoughts were like. Some of this is so basic. Like they're going to make fun of me. Like, what do you mean? How to take criticism? How to like how basic? Yeah, it is. I was just like, yeah. oh, yeah. they're not going to. They love it though. Like, they, so yeah. what, the first few groups I ran, everybody started getting engaged in this. Or people speaking up that never did before, and it gets really good discussions going. I was I was surprised by that. Which I think that's now that we're looking back, I think that's spot on though, because that's ultimately what a lot of them do struggle with. Because I'll think something's a, a simple concept in my head, and then sometimes people in the group had no clue or they don't know how yeah. they're coming across or they don't get it. Well, dude, it, it takes care of the problem of the wallflowers in group as well. Yeah. Because everybody participates, every group, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's nice. I think you both have raised uh, a similar point in that what I see a lot, cause we visit you know, lots of institutions. We work with lots of professionals. We see lots of offenders. And what I notice a lot is the offenders really do like it. I can tell when I show up at a group that I've never been to. None of these people know me. When an offender calls back to something they learned five weeks ago and he says, you know, when I was in, you know, my cell last night and this dude came in and this is how I handled the situation. And he starts throwing out some of the skills like that's got to be very rewarding for a facilitator, you know, that they actually like remembered something. They Mm -hmm. got it. They used it. They saw value in it. That's a clear evidence that you made an impact. And these guys get excited. Like they're really happy that they found a way to navigate these situations that have been in the past really difficult for them. And I think for facilitators, it can be like, Oh, you feel like, I don't know how this is going to work. But when you start working with the curriculum and you have moments like that where you're like, okay, they're getting it and they're, they're using it when I'm not making them get up and do mm-hmm. it. Like they're, they're out in the yard or they're you know, out in the community and they're, they're doing things that I've taught them in this group. They're getting these skills and, and they enjoy it. They like it. So, yeah. They, and, and, it, and the simplicity behind it, like Justin said, I think can be intimidating because yeah. If I if I go on to like um, and I'm not I'm not gonna knock any particular uh, model or anything like that, but I think traditionally, if I look at sex offender treatment, um, there's assignments, right? Mm-hmm. When we and we do practice work, we do homework, of course, but the homework is simple, simple, simple. But the value of that homework is not in what I write on the paper. The value of the homework is what I apply to my real life. Yeah. And so too often, I think we get 
um, and I mentioned this before, and I don't, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm kind of going out on a limb of my personal thoughts of, we use this word internalization a lot, mm-hmm. and how I've kind of framed this in my mind is, um, I used to think it was, did he understand it? And that was it. Yeah. So a client showed a cognitive understanding of this, but now I think it has a more three parts to it. I think it's, did cognitively they understand the material, yeah. understand the concept of whatever I was trying to teach them, practically did they apply it to their own lives and then after they practically applied it do they have emotional appreciation for that intervention now if you have all three of those components that person's going to internalize that because that's how i've learned things in my own life if i just look at the value of cognitive behavioral therapy i you know i i i uh talked about worry last week and anxiety and dealing with anxiety and fear and i said you know worry is a very functional type of thing if i worry about something i saw i it motivates me to solve that problem i solve that problem my worry goes away well i've learned that but i've never really put words to it this is i learned that but i i've learned that okay if i if i think that i'm worried and then i go into problem solving mode i solve that problem i'm no longer worried there's my value i get emotional relief and that's great and some people, the the linear, they don't think that in that linear process and they need help getting mm-hmm. that way. Because if they did think linearly like that, they wouldn't be in our groups. Right. They wouldn't be sitting in front of us if they had that no. kind of thought process. And we have to accept that. Well, the other thing, too, I think is important is sometimes they don't have appropriate models. So mm-hmm. it's not like they've had a chance to observe a pro-social skill. And then apply it to see how it would work, to get that natural reward that, hey, when you're pro-social and you're easy to deal with, when you can be cool, people like it, right? So it's automatically rewarding, but they haven't seen the model. And so when you bring them in and you say, like, we're going to model it, it might really be the first time they've ever seen that actually, you know, play out where they're aware of what's happening and and like, oh, okay, this is like how, how people deal with frustration or... You know, some something that's stressful for them, how they deal with anxiety. And then when you make them do it, it really might be the first time they've ever done that. Well, some of, the, some of so, the groups. Oh, sorry. Cut you yeah, off. Just, you know, the, the, they have to kind of go through that process to get the reward, to get that good feeling, to get that link. Like, oh, when I do this behavior, it works. It's beneficial for me. So I want to keep doing it. Wow. Yeah, that's a really good point because as you were saying that, one of the things I thought of, you and Mace were talking about that is I think one of the first things where I saw light bulbs going off as I started to introduce this, which surprised me a little because I think sometimes we take it for granted, but when it gets to the the behavior chain analysis where this is talking about there's a situation, then in this situation I have certain thoughts. Based on those thoughts, I have certain feelings, and based on those feelings, I have actions, and then there's consequences. Right. I, I was surprised how much everyone struggled when we got to the feeling part. Like, what emotions are you feeling? Yeah. Because they just went into more of explaining the situation. Like, yep. they didn't grasp that. Or they this just, thing of thought. Yeah, yeah. Like, so when you hand out the feeling faces worksheet and people are like, oh, what? Well, I, I didn't know there was this. I was like, yeah, there's way more than that. That's that's where a lot of them initially just, well, how can I deal with anxiety? If I don't even know what anxiety is or how to label it, like, what does that feel like in my body? What does that feel like emotionally? That surprised me. So that's, that's where I realized, yeah, t- yeah, sometimes taking a step back from this more in-depth stuff is a really good idea. You were uh, talking about how when you first looked at the curriculum, you cringed a little bit when you saw, you know, that one of the skills we were teaching is responding to criticism because it's almost like, duh, everyone knows how to do that. But like Jamie's pointing out, like, well, you know, like not really. Not really. And, and so it's as we're going through and doing the so part part of the curriculum is role plays if you're if you're a listener and uh it's it I guess it surprises me how much some of the dudes 
struggle uh, getting it kind of like it's like, oh, this this really is new for you. So there's a lot of stuff that I think that I've assumed to be common knowledge among most people that really just isn't the case. So it's taught me that I kind of need to start start back start back here a ways, yeah. you know, and, and not assume that everybody knows. And when Mace was talking about the complexity of some of the curriculum based workbooks that, you know, uh, we used to use, or maybe other programs currently use, I, it kind of makes me think that the complexity is more to appease us as the clinician yeah. and make us feel better. Like, okay, there here, this is a super comp. I mean, again, I, I, I'm trying not to, uh, throw any particular workbook under the bus, but there's some that like, I'm not sure I understand. And, but it almost feels like, well, this is super complex and there must be a lot to it. Uh, clearly this is state of the art cutting edge and we're moving past this Mickey Mouse stuff. But I mean, the Mickey Mouse stuff isn't Mickey Mouse stuff. It's the building blocks that a lot of these dudes haven't had from the get go. Hey, you can't move on to the other stuff if you don't have that. I'll be the first to admit that though. I remember at one point we thought if our relapse prevention plan is longer, Somehow that's more meaningful. Remember that one you wrote up, the one that you wrote yeah. back when we were at the group like home? A, uh, it's like 60 pages. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But you know, it's like in this one and, uh, and, and this is, so this, I, I, I was convinced, but one of the, the interventions that was in here, one of the lessons that really made an impact for me was it's, it's not uncommon in sex offender treatment programs for a client to have to do an autobiography. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I've, I've, Work with clients who say they went through it and oh, I have my autobiography and as a, and it's a minimum of thirty pages. I'm like, oh, I don't read that thing, like you know. And and I guess they're reading it, you know, and they take up two groups to read it. And somewhere in there, I've got to pick these little granules out of like why that would be meaningful, right? Well, so the the lesson on life history yeah. factors and lifestyle factors was so great and covers was, it yeah it covers it and yeah. it's and it's a half a page for each of those so it's all on one page and it makes so much sense you know um a lot of times we get wrapped up in what happened with the offense what happened with the offense what happened with the offense and i and i have to start asking I'm like i don't know why that matters especially if the offense was 10 years ago yeah. uh, look the the way that the assignment articulates is so simple but so elegant and to the point that it makes an impact they say look there's life history factors that happened to you that were beyond your control that you probably didn't have anything to do with that contributed to your decision to offend likewise there was lifestyle factors going on around the time that you offended that also contributed to that can't do anything about the historical stuff because you don't have a time machine but we can identify whether or not you've maintained any of those lifestyle factors in your current life what are those that is such a great concept to talk to one of those guys about versus you know, what were you thinking back then? Well, what does it matter? I mean, yeah. you know, like, and, and then the proverbial, you should have thought about that when you offend. Like, okay, thanks. You're Dad. fixed. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, like, I, I've spent a lot of sessions caught up talking about, you know, like what, like, what happened to you when you were nine years old when currently like the the risk factor right here and now is the dude can't keep a job because he's still tuck him, stuck in prison mode and he you know he called his mm-hmm. boss a bitch or something right you know what i mean and so like maybe this uh responding to the feelings of others skill step thing could be more applicable because this that this dude's actually dealing with this right now if we can get him to keep a job his risk goes down right i, I don't know how much his risk goes down if we finally conclude that oh yeah when you were nine you went through this and so maybe like i don't know yeah, so you guys are hitting on that like need principle, right? So yeah. you think about when we do assessments on offenders, where you're assessing for anything that would be related to committing more crimes in the future, right? That's what mm-hmm. we want to know. Um, 
And so one of the biggest predictors is criminal history, but it's a static factor. So right. what we mean by that is you can't change it. So you don't want to target it. You don't want to spend a lot of time on it. You have a finite amount of time with these people. You want to target the things that are dynamic, the things that you can change. So those risky situations, the skills that they don't have, those antisocial thoughts, values, beliefs, those are the things that we kind of you know should prioritize because of the, that's where you can make the difference. Right. I love that you're saying this right now because the, the, the podcast that's going to be released next, we talk a lot about specifically working on dynamic risk factors and the value in that. So that's, I don't know, that's well-timed. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) I do what I can. Well, and and for the longest time, like how long um, would you say it took you? Because I kind of, I I don't know, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid early on, but for you, how long did it take you to come around to this idea that, okay, accountability is not everything? Because the sex offender treatment is huge. Like it's like, you know, if we don't get through this, then you can't do it, right? And I've always said, I was like, okay, look, let's just take client A, client B. Client A totally denies their offense. Client B totally accepts their offense. Both of them do the interventions exactly the same way. You're telling me client A is now going to reoffend because they, they're saying, you know what, I'm not talking about that. And, and the way that you're breaking it down didn't happen. I'll say, look, if we're, if they're reducing antisocial thinking and antisocial behaviors and they got a job and they make good friends, pros, I mean, what does it matter? At one point, it doesn't matter very like so much because they're still doing the work, right? How long did that take you to come around to that? Well, it was a while, uh, right? A couple of years, probably. I, I remember you first told me it was at a conference with, I think, Burton. Yeah. So Burton was presenting. Is it David Burton? What's that dude's name? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was presenting. You said that. Oh, bullshit. You know, and it was probably up until a couple of years ago. Finally. But but I think a lot of that was what I was talking about is my my resistance early on to abandoning my holistic approach, you know, uh, like and finally getting on on the on board with evidence based treatment. It's just I, I, I don't like the idea that this. Uh, hallmark of treatment is, has been refuted by, by contemporary literature. I, it didn't, it, and, and besides that, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right that denial of offenses and a risk factor is as much, and it doesn't make sense to me that, uh, empathy doesn't play a role, uh, in predicting recidivism either. So I, I think that I was having an emotional reaction to facts and I was paying more attention to, I guess I was just, uh, not thinking logically. Well, those that. those those moments are huge, though. Like when you have those moments with a client where they come around, you know, it's like, you know what, I did do it. Like that feels good, though. Like that's a bonding moment. It you does, know, they, yeah. So, so I think we value that more. But I think the aspect of because I, I definitely feel still like, yeah, if that comes up and it's a part of it, that's that's a cool, you know, small piece of the pie where some places are like, you're not even moving forward until you say you did it. Like, that's ridiculous. Well, you're creating getting a pillar, hung up right? on it. Yeah, because then he's just going to say it. So, well, I can't get to level two unless I say that. Okay, I'll say it. Yep, because I did it. Yeah. 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 I mean, we see lots of legislation, even at the state level, where programs don't really have any, um, you know, leeway in that. Like, if they don't admit to it, then they don't get to participate. They get terminated. Um, so it can be frustrating, even, you know, if you adopt. A different perspective. Um, yeah, what a horrible way to crazy to me. Yeah. Like especially early on in treatment. Like yeah, it's, you, you got to remember. Dealing, yeah, you got to build yeah. rapport. Like mm-hmm. I, I figure, like six months deep. Now I'm starting to learn who the client is, you know, and he's just starting to loosen up mm-hmm. a little bit. And you're gonna expect somebody to like expect them to take accountability for their offense at the outset of treatment. It's it's like expecting somebody that would be you know like a level four level 
programs or levels like to, like somebody that's brand new to act like somebody that's a veteran of treatment and it's just not really doesn't really match up well no yeah get it but it but it feels good yeah. when they admit it I was working with another group recently and they they had similar sentiments about working with the curriculum like it feels weird that we don't make them talk about their offense it feels weird that you know it's okay if they deny it um, and simultaneously I was working with another site in a totally different location and they were emailing me like we're trying to get some policy changes at the state level can you please help us like they're making us enforce this like they have to admit and if they don't um you know they're not going to let them do treatment and so i was reading all of this research on denial um and so i have a huge stack of articles uh, that i'm going through still but the bulk of what i found shows that it doesn't impact treatment outcomes no. So it's no matter how many times I hear it, I'm like, what? Yeah. But, but yeah, but I, but I, I finally conceded. I roll with it now and I'm on board. I'm totally on board. You it's don't just want, like, you don't how want me is to that possible? Yeah. A big stack I, of articles. I, no, no, I believe it. I, and I've seen the articles. It's just like, I, I want it to be true. Yeah, there's, still, there's so, still a okay. gut reaction, even though I know it's wrong. Yeah. 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 Yep. I'm on board with it. I'm on board with it. It's just, it's strange to me. What? Like, it seems like it should be. Yeah. But it's not. So, yeah. all right. Mm. Well, it was interesting, the conversation that I recently had with another team. One lady said, it feels like going to the dentist without talking about your teeth. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Though. And I was yeah. like, that's a neat way to say it. Like, I never thought about it like that. But then one of her colleagues said, I almost feel like it's more for me when I want them to talk about certain things because <laughs> I'm interested. Like, yeah. I want to figure it out. I want to know what goes on in their mind. I want to know, you know, how they work. And, um, you know, in the end, she was like, it took me a long time to get to where I feel like I really I'm interested because of the type of work I do, but it doesn't help the client. And so it was hard. She was like, it's so hard for me to separate the two. That was her personal experience, which I thought. It was like neat to hear, you know, a group of people. Well, on the flip yeah. side, one one thing I, I had struggled with initially when we had more of the typical curriculum, you know, taking pieces out of workbooks and here's your assignment is what I what I had a hard time with. Say you have someone come into a session and a family member just died or something like that. You know, we're talking about that. He's bawling. I'm like, oh, okay, well. Here's your uh, assignment about article or about cycles. So here you go. I'll talk to you later. It's like that didn't help him at all. Right. We weren't addressing anything that he was going through, anything he was dealing with. It's just like, oh, that sucks, man. Well, we got to hurry and get this assignment done. Sorry about that. Yeah, that, that's what I had a hard time with sometimes. Kills the flow. Of or if you did focus on it, well, then now moving to the next level is going to take even longer because we were processing this. We didn't do your assignment. We're now. Yeah, it all just we can tie it into that. Mm-hmm. You can just meet them with where they're at. As opposed to having to fit their life into a box. Like yeah. we're supposed to do. Yeah. Like therapy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Therapy, yeah. Well, they, and, and even to the, like the denial piece and the empathy piece is kind of funny too, because you and I have talked about this and I even, have you started that book, uh, Behave by Robert Sapolsky? No, I haven't yet. I'm still finishing Sapiens. Super, super interesting stuff. Like empathy. Uh, everybody thinks it's like the, the holy grail of this mm-hmm. stuff. And, and I've, I've long advocated and it was, I, I think you told, taught me this is what it came from was, um, this, uh, like it's not always as great as we think it is. And there was a study in there that he was referencing. It was done out of like the university of, um, like Buffalo or, or yeah, New, somewhere in New York, I think, you know, and, and what they did was they were showing that, uh, the release of oxytocin, vaso, whatever that is, you know, that causes empathy. So yes, makes you have empathy for one person, but then makes you violent towards another person because, so they were, what al- does 
the empathy. So they were saying, so like uh, they gave a great example and they said, okay, so if I have a lot of empathy for a person who's, and they were referencing kind of like uh, a contemporary stuff. They did a, the study that they did was they had students who were telling a story and people were listening to this story. And it was basically these students were poor. And the conclusion that a lot of people drew, there was two conclusions that were drawn out. Either that the student was down on their luck and was scared because they didn't have any money or the student was low on funds, but didn't really care about it. And then they were, and then they were asked the people who were listening to the story were asked to uh, that the student who was poor, you could administer hot sauce, <laughs> pour it on the, like this other person to like make them suffer a little bit, you know, <laughs> to help this other person. And without knowing who this person was, so the other the people who felt like this student just was nonchalant, didn't care about it, or whatever, they didn't develop empathy for that person because they didn't hear his down and out story. But the students who they thought were down and out. And who were really scared because they didn't have any money and would get twenty thousand dollars? They were more than willing to hurt that other person to help this poor down and out. Really, kid, right? Huh. So the they were comparing mean? this to um, like a lot of the stuff with like people transitioning and everything right now. The whole like the I'm, I'm, I'm if I'm transitioning to being a man or a woman or something like that, and the vitriol that you see towards other people who aren't buying into that. So like it was talking about Jordan Peterson and all these other things, and they were saying, look, so a lot of people have empathy for these individuals. You know, they really say these people are struggling and going through a, a really rough time in their lives. And because of that, they act out towards others who they think are persecuting them and totally fine with inflicting mm. violence on other people. So in, in using empathy to be compassionate towards a perceived victim, they're, they're acting psychopathic towards selective the empathy. Al- alleged perspective. Yeah, yeah, selective empathy. Yeah. Correct. So that's, that's, so that's what they were Dang, trying to say. Mm. And, they, and they've shown this with mothers um, you know, of, of animals who develop empathy for their children who will then like, you know, it's like, if you see a moose in the wild and she's got kids, you're dead, you know, or something like that. Like, because I'm, because I think that you're a threat. And because if I think that I'm much more willing to act out towards you violently. So they, they, and in that book, Robert Sapolsky talks a lot about that. You know, he was talking about testosterone gets a bad rap and all these other things. I mean, it gets really scientific. I guess the point there is, is though a lot of this stuff is these, these things that we've been, these stalwarts and treatment that we say, this is what really matters. I think has a whole lot more to do. It makes us feel good. Like it may, it makes you feel good when an offender says, yeah, I did it. And here's all the things that I did. And man, I can't imagine what that poor girl or guy is going through. I mean, it, and that's, that feels good to hear that from a person who's taking accountability, but it's not about me. It's not about yeah. me feeling good as to whether or not you're going to reoffend. Like right. what matters is, can I administer a treatment that's going to help you not reoffend? If that that's my goal, not for me to feel good. So sometimes I think directionless groups. That, I mean, I've sat it and I've man, man that's one of the most amazing groups I've ever seen. And there's tears everywhere and everything. I'm like, I don't know if anybody made any progress or can take any <laughs> skill from that group and practically apply it to their lives, other than that was so inspirational. Admitting to, stuff's good. Yeah. To yeah. Uh, yeah. Those. So I. I I think looking at that is really important to to just say the research is there's plenty of it out there to suggest that a lot of these things we take that we think are you know 100 percent to be true we just got to question them a little bit and just have some humility. I mean, right. the behavioral health field needs way more humility. It drives me nuts. We would never ever go into a medical doctor and he's saying, "Okay, I'm going to do this treatment because I like it." 
Yeah. There's no evidence behind it, but I like it, and I'm going to do it. Like, uh, Well, there's no. actually evidence that suggests it doesn't work, yeah. but I like doing it. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, like, I don't think that the medical field is, like, blind to that. I, I think that a lot of times doctors, especially maybe some of the older doctors that went to medical school, school 30 years ago, in, unless they're really on the up and up, they might be – uh, treating their patients based on 30 year old research. And, and, and so like, it kind of happens in every field. It happens in nutrition. It happens in like, I mean, I, I'm big into working out and I can't tell you how many conflicting workout articles I've read about. This is the best way to do this. And then it's the exact counterpoint. No, this is better nutrition. Same thing. This way of doing it's the best way to get lean. And then the exact counterpoint. And, and I mean, it, like it, it gets super confusing and the waters get extra muddy Ultimately, the thing that we have to hang our hat on is what the evidence bears out. And maybe it's it's within the realm of possibility that, you know, 15 years from now, we'll find out that the contemporary research that we're using today is dated because we somehow messed up this research methodology. And, oh, look, denial actually does matter. Who knows? Right. Mm-hmm. But but until that comes, that won't, that won't happen. Well, it's so to speak, dude. But like it, but I mean, until then, we follow what the current research shows. And so we have a we have some risk factors that yield and can predict risk to some degree and then then you guys the cincinnati folks you developed interventions to help address those risk factors so you know that's what we do we put our ego aside we put the feel goods aside and and address risk yeah and i i think too i mean to your point definitely keep testing it because there's so many factors that play into it just because it works here doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in another state. Uh, you know, they could have a, a culturally different population and maybe it doesn't work as good for them. So there are pieces of it where you do have to keep testing it, which is why we want to do evaluation with your site and some other sites where we can make those comparisons and say, hey, are we having an impact? And if we are having an impact, great. What are we doing well? What's working about this that we can share with other people? And if we're not having an impact, okay. Let's go back to the drawing board and see what pieces might be missing here. So we do the fidelity yeah, that's checks. Perfect. Right? Which, in my opinion, that makes so that makes you guys the the Corrections Institute, the University in Cincinnati, head and shoulders above the rest. Because as much as somebody says this is the model, this is the model that you need to do, like I, I just don't see you don't see any follow up. It's like okay, so is there are there are there um you know any are there any um. Uh, research to support that? Not really. Okay, do you guys have any fidelity monitoring? No, we don't do that. What about a training? No, we just have a workbook. I don't I don't know how good I feel about that. I mean, it was nice to say, send a client off into the sunset with an assignment that was 30 pages, and then they come back and I review it with them and I have a good discussion and I don't know how much that impacted them, particularly when it's talking about a lot of stuff in the past. But like, um, so, I mean, like you coming here, observing uh, our group, most amazing group you've ever seen, um, and, and then not, and, uh, and offering us feedback, right? So the only reason I've ever been able to get to the point where I do groups well is because I've sucked. I've sucked at one point or another. It's not like I was like killing it from the day one. Part of this was me exercising hum- some humility and saying, I want to do good groups and I take feedback and I'm going to apply that the next time and I'm going to get a little bit better. And I've learned a whole lot more from my failures than my successes. I mean, if every time I nailed a group, what's the point? I mean, I wouldn't be doing it. So I like the negative feedback 
because, well, not negative, it's just critical feedback on what I can improve on because then I'm delivering the better medicine. Because yeah. I get what you're saying in the medical health field, but there are some things that are constants, right? Like there's, there's, there's some things that every doctor's doing right now, like everybody else, because there's so much evidence behind it, right? Hope so. And there's, and I just remember a slide, I actually pulled it up while we were chatting here. And this was from uh, Mindy's presentation. It said, and she, it, on this, it was saying there are more than 40 published meta-analyses. Those are study of studies of correctional treatment r- literature. And it says results have replicated with remarkable consistency. There is considerable support for the RNR model, risk-need-responsivity framework, across quantitative reviews of the literature. I mean, I just don't know how much more evidence you need at that point. It's hard to argue with. Well, right. And I, and I say, so, so great. Like that, that people should be jazzed about that. People mm-hmm. say, wow, okay, great. We have something that's going to, that's going to work. And I think there is, there's, there's a, um, I, I feel good with this and I've had, I've, I've anecdotally had success and I won't argue with people. I believe they probably have had Absolutely. good out- outcomes. The problem with that is kind of this, uh, it's uh, um, the uh, fallacy of authority problem is as good as you are I can't replicate you you're one person right. how am I going to replicate that in my agency so I, you can do a presentation about how awesome you are and I'll agree with you but I'm not you yeah. I don't have your personality I don't have your knowledge and I can't do this can we develop a curriculum which I believe you guys have done I mean literally it tells you what to say to clients what to write what to go through that is going to render the most positive outcomes. It removes, it removes uh, the individual therapist as a variable. Right. Like, like I need 25 years to be good at something, right? Which again, anybody who's been in treatment that long, you're going to be awesome. And you're going to be one of the best therapists I've ever seen. Unfortunately, I've got two years like, (laughs) and I suck. So what can I do now to start making an effect on this? And, you know, can I get better over time? And all of my, you know, initially, yeah, as a little robotic. Sure. Of course it's robotic because I'm, I'm, there's a curriculum, there's a script. I mean, there's a very, you know, particular format, but once I've done that a few times, I throw my personality back in there and then there we got it. Fair enough. Yeah. That was something I ran into, which was funny. I caught myself kind of lying to myself in my head. So the whole thing was when we first, when we were out of the training and they're like, yeah, just, you're going to read it. Like you're actually just going to read it. My first thought was like, well, then it's just going to look like, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's not going to seem, it's not going to seem genuine, which sometimes I still get a little worried. And I was like, I was, I was thinking about this and I was like, well, how can I like make it look like I'm not looking down or how can I like <laughs> read it before and know it really well and make it look like I know what I'm doing? You got like, Goog- like Google glasses on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the whole thing was, I was thinking, well, it's going to look like I don't know what to say. I was like, you don't. You don't know what to say. You don't know what the lesson is. That's the whole point. You read it. It tells you what to say. It removes that. So I was like having this internal battle for no reason because the whole point. Dude, I just addressed that with the clients. I was like, hey, look, I suck at this right now. Just but hey, yeah. let, let's 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 figure it out. Watch. It goes better and, if I and, read it. Yeah. And to me, like it was kind of funny because like I, I don't know if they felt compelled to rally around me. I remember like after I'd run my first couple of groups, like, good job, Jeff. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. You yeah. did it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Well, I, I think yeah. the authenticity is um it gives you a long way with people if you're trying to, you know, help them make changes in their life. Yeah. And you know, I hear that a lot from people that we work with that I feel so weird, just like it's such a formula and it feels so generic. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel weird just reading it. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, my response to that is always you're modeling exactly what you want them to do. You're doing something new. It feels uncomfortable. Mm, it feels awkward. And you get in there and you do it and you get better. And 
they are here to do the exact same thing. Learn something new. It's going to feel really awkward and they're going to have to just get out there and try it, you know? And so you're modeling that for them in a, in a way that's really uh, honest and real. Like that's why they call it a practice. That's right. It's a a therapeutic practice, son. Come on now. That gives me a good way to maybe explain that to clients that initially might feel like it's robotic as well. You know, anytime you're learning a skill that takes effort, like Justin plays the guitar. And if Justin were going to give me guitar lessons, who's never played in my life, uh, he's probably going to take a systematic stepwise approach to kind of maybe, I don't know what, I don't know anything about instruments. Teach me the notes probably first off, you know, but it's going to kind of take like a, like some kind of structured approach. He's not going to just going to play stare away from heaven and say, okay, play that, you know, like, uh, mainly cause I can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good point. Like you're off to the races kind of thing, as opposed to like, well, how do I even start the car? Like, where do I? Right. How do I open the door? Yeah, yeah. And that's the kind of instruction I'd need if I was if you're going to hand me guitar. Like, sure, yeah. I, what, what hand Step do I one. Even hold it with? Yeah. Right, what do I do? Well, we preach that a lot. I mean, that's the thing. Therapists say that all the time. You know, like um, this is going to be new to you. You just need to be patient with it. And rarely do we get an opportunity to genuinely practice that and then embrace it. And like, and just say, yeah, I'm not good at this right now, yeah. but I'm gonna get, get good at it. Like, I guarantee I'm gonna get yeah. good at it. Like, and, and you will, like, you will get better at this over time as long as you stick with it and take it. And then, like, you know, uh, I do a lot of fidelity monitoring and, and I'll get, you know, just given behavioral based feedback on, you know, increase this, decrease this, and people take offense to it. And I'm like, I'm not being mean. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help. Like that's, and, and for therapists, it's weird. It's weird. It's not as simple. It's not as simple as, as something like the medical profession. You know, like I have to, yeah, I've got to listen to your, to your session with this client. It's going to be a little bit awkward or somebody has to sit into my group and that's going to be a little bit awkward too. But I mean, the more comfortable you get with those things, I mean, now it's second nature to me. And so then after a while, you don't even, it doesn't even bother you anymore. And being critiqued by other people is a good thing. Like just not doing well, learning from your failures is, and it's not even a failure. What is that? What I say, it's not, you don't lose you. There's no losers. There's only learners. There, yeah. Yeah, There's no losers. There's learners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which total cliche, but absolute truth though at the same time. Like it has a lot of meaning to me. Besides that, if you're a therapist listening to this podcast, you know, practice what you preach. You, you ask clients to be open to feedback, right? I mean, right. maybe, maybe you should also. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. And it so makes you sensitive too. I mean, if you're observing people, right, you, you kind of like one step removed, you just put yourself in the other position and yeah. you think, Oh, like, yeah, it is awkward to be in that position. And you have to be sensitive to those kinds of things. And it's nice to be in the hot seat sometimes where you feel like, Oh yeah, it's a good, good reminder of what yeah, this feels yeah. like and what our clients feel like every time they walk through the door. I'll get my chance on Thursday when you're looking over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Shortly after I started, yeah. I had it cause groups terrified me. I just, I didn't like yeah. that. Well, especially cause the first one I ever sit in is Mace's to see how it goes. And he's like, it's like the Tony uh, Robbins show. Yeah. It was like <laughs> flames and a huge production. But, uh, so I, I just felt dumb in a lot of my groups and it's kind of cool cause the little ways in I'm getting to know some of my clients and one of them just said, I thought it was really cool when I first started. You were kind of nervous in your groups. And I was like, really? He's like, he's like, you just made you human. Like it was yeah. cool that you've yeah. kind of admitted, like, I don't know what to do here. It was just cool cause it, it felt like we were all like the same. Huh. It was, so that kind of stood out. So like you're saying, just kind of owning it. Hey, this is new to me. I'm going to read. I'm probably going to stumble over some of the words, just laugh a little or whatever. Yep. Yeah, you make it more real. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so how do, how do people get a hold of you guys? 
Uh, they can look on our website. You Which can just is? Google us because I can't remember the website off the top of my head. What should they Google? University of Cincinnati it. Corrections Institute. There you go. Yeah. And I wonder how people know how to spell Cincinnati right out of the gate. No, but they're not from there. They don't got it. Here, hold on. I got it you. It is a tricky one. Like everybody it? can spell Mississippi, but Cincinnati throws people for a loop. So it's yeah. www.uc.edu slash corrections. Simple. Right. Simple. Right. Yeah. Well, well, well uh, when we post it up, I'll put it in the little description part too. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I mean, um, yeah, email at corrections.institute at uc.edu, and uh, they have the 513-556-7765. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just say anybody listening to this, uh, I mean, it's a big change for sure, but, uh, you know, UCCI, I mean, they are great people and fun to work with, obviously. Um, and uh, I think if you're genuinely in, so if you're if your intention is, to genuinely help your clients and make an impact on reducing recidivism. If you're doing corrections work with, you know, justice involved clients, I mean, this is, this is the way to do it, to accomplish. I mean, I just haven't seen a better, um, I mean, that's why we reached out to you. I did oh, plenty of research. You. I mean, you guys do a great job and I'm not, yeah. I'm just saying that. I mean, I was, I'm really impressed with Mindy and I, uh, looked at the stuff and I was, I mean, really impressed with the whole, the whole training and it really pushed me to challenge myself. And, um, yeah, it's made us, I think it's made us all better clinicians, certainly a better agency. So, yeah, yeah. We absolutely. love hearing that. You guys are awesome. Yeah. Appreciate you coming yeah, on. And this is, this is Jamie's first podcast ever. All right. In fact, she is asked to do interviews before and denied them because mm. they're not as cool as us. Was that what it was? Is exactly, how cool we are? Exactly it. I was like, <laughs> no. Every other person, I was like, no, no. And then when Mace asked me, I was like, well, I can't say no to me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that is so, awesome. that's all. No, we really appreciate it. So do you have anything else you want to say? No, no. Thanks for having me. It was fun being oh, here. Oh, no. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's wrap this up. All right, everyone. That's a wrap on episode 15. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We want to thank Jamie for coming out, having some fun with us, being a good sport about coming on the podcast. She did an awesome job. We really appreciate it. Also, next episode coming up here, we'll have this out hopefully within just a few days. We have one of our good friends, all around good person, stud, ultra nice guy, Arlo Gagastine. I hope I'm saying that right, but he is here on the podcast. He, he is the owner of Competitive Edge Fitness. So we're actually going to have him on the show. We're going to talk about the role that uh, being active or physical activity plays as far as mental health, You know how to overcome things like not feeling motivated, how to get into more of a disciplined mindset to make things happen. But he ended up coming on the show. Really good podcast. We're going to get that one posted up next. In the meantime, make sure you check us out. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that jazz. It's Gorilla Social Work Podcast. G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. Gorilla Social Work. Help spread the word. You guys have been awesome so far. We've really appreciated the comments and the feedback. Keep it coming in. And thanks for spreading the word. And we will see you on the next episode.